Good morning. It's great to be back with you as we open God's Word together. Uh, before we start, I just want to tell you how blessed I've been uh, these last couple months as God has raised up different men to teach the Word to us. been blessed um, by John and his insights into the Scriptures and by Bear and his continued reminder that walking with Christ is first and foremost a relationship. I've been blessed by Ernie when he joined us and his passion for Christ. And uh, this last week, really encouraged uh, by Tom Lunsford, not only his insight into the Word, but his insight into the human heart and the needs that we have and the, and the burdens that we carry. And so it's been just a treat uh, these last months to sit under the teaching of the Word. And it's a joy for me to get to be a part of that uh, this morning. We've been going through this series called Faithful from Hebrews 11, where we look at these men and women who were examples of tremendous faith. And it's important we always go back and understand biblically what faith is. The old translations of Hebrews 11 would tell us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the certainty of things unseen. It's that conviction beyond a shadow of a doubt that that God will do what he has said he will do. Beyond that, Hebrews 11 tells us that Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For to please God, you must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe that that God is real and that God is good. And that if you find him, that when you seek him, you have found the greatest treasure. And so at the root of what it is to walk with God is this understanding that God is good and that when we seek him, he's good to us and he blesses us. And so in the lives of the men and women in Hebrews 11, we see that story play out over and over again. And today we get an exciting one. It's the, the faith of the man Joseph, guy I love. Now, I, I love the story of Joseph because it's a bit of a mystery. And growing up, I always liked the uh, Indiana Jones movies. You know, not the newer one with the Shia LaBeouf and the Crystal Skull and the aliens. That one, I just, I don't know what they were doing there. The old ones, uh, you know, Temple of Doom, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I like them, uh, and I realize the action sequences are great. But I like them predominantly because uh, as a kid who always kind of liked history, the mystery that unfolded as the story went along. And so we get one of those mysteries today. You're going to see that as we go through uh, Joseph's life and, and the significant act of faith that the scriptures point out in Hebrews 11 for Joseph present us with one of those mysteries. And so if you have a fedora today, you're in good shape um, like Indy, but you can leave the bullwhip at home. That'll scare people. If we want to jump in now with any mystery, you begin with going through what you know. Before we start diving into answering questions that we don't yet know the answer to, we, we have to step back and say, okay, what do we know to be true? What do, what's our starting point? And so I want to do that with the life of Joseph and just kind of run quickly through Joseph's life story. If you didn't grow up in church, uh, this might be new to you. I would encourage you to do one of two things. The best option would be to read the last like 14 chapters uh, of Genesis. That would be a really good um, introduction into who Joseph is. If you're a bit lazy, you can get the DreamWorks video, um, Joseph, Prince of Dreams, and it has music that goes along with it. I won't be singing any of those numbers today, but, but they are entertaining. Um, here's the story of Joseph. Joseph growing up was the youngest son of his father, Jacob. Now, he was also Jacob's favorite son, and you're going to see immediately some really strange dynamics in this family. Joseph is the favorite because he is the daughter of the son of Jacob's favorite wife. 
He's the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. See, Jacob had wanted to marry Rachel, and he had worked for seven years so that she could become his bride. But on the wedding night, his father-in-law did a bait and switch and gave him Leah instead. And so Jacob then worked for another seven years so that he could get the wife that he truly wanted. And so right away, we know we've got some real problems in the family dynamics here because we have one man and he is married to two sisters. Now, there, there's some other um, uh, servants that he ends up kind of taking as wives and having children with. Uh, and years and years go by, and, and Jacob and his beloved wife, Rachel, are unable to have children together until finally God grants Joseph to them as the youngest of the sons. And he is Jacob's favorite. And Jacob treats him better than the other boys. And that becomes a real problem within the family. One of the things that happens is if they didn't have enough reason for animosity with their younger brother is that God had given uh, Joseph a revelation through a dream that one day his older brothers would bow down to him. And Joseph, being the arrogance not he was, didn't have any trouble letting them know what God had shared with him. So they got even more frustrated with him. The, the family begins to fracture, and the older brothers decide that what they're going to do is they're going to sell Joseph into slavery and tell their father that he died. And so they do that. And Joseph, as a young man, is taken uh, by caravan with slave traders, ends up in the slave markets of Egypt where he is sold. And he goes into the household as property of a man named Potiphar, who's a high-ranking military official. Now, Joseph serves there in Potiphar's house. And he's an interesting young man. He, he's a hard worker. He's obviously been well-educated by his father. And the hand of the Lord is upon Joseph and blesses really everything that he touches. And Potiphar notices that, and so he begins to put Joseph in charge of his household. And Joseph manages all of Potiphar's business, and then something happens that becomes a real problem. See, Potiphar's got this trophy wife who's maybe not of great character, and she notices Joseph, and she pursues him. Genesis chapter 39 records that experience, or how it kicks off in chapter 39, verse 4. It says, Joseph found favor in his sight, that's Potiphar, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor is he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, I want you to just point something out of significant importance when you understand who Joseph is. Joseph does not deny Potiphar's wife because of some circumstantial reason. He doesn't say, I can't lie with you because Potiphar might find out, and if he does, He'll be very angry with me. I'll probably get beaten. I might get thrown into jail. 
He, he doesn't say, I, I can't lie with you because you might get pregnant, and then how would we explain that? There's no circumstantial reason. And the reason that's important is when, when we're tempted with sin, if our reasons to withhold from the pleasures of sin is are circumstantial, we can find ourselves in circumstances where we convince ourselves that it won't happen that way and we have nothing to fear. Joseph's motivation behind his purity and denying the temptation in front of him is that it would be a sin against God and no circumstance changes that. Well, Potiphar's wife doesn't view that as Joseph's final answer. She continues to pursue him and eventually falsely accuses him of assaulting her. And because of that, Joseph is thrown in prison. There in prison, he continues to have the Lord's hand upon him. He ends up taking some administrative responsibilities in the prison. At some point, his path intersects with two men who had been servants of Pharaoh. And these men have had dreams of what their future would hold. And Joseph is used by God to interpret those dreams and really to speak as a prophet to reveal the situations. And what he tells them is that one of the men will be restored to the Pharaoh's house and his place of service while the other will be executed. And things happen exactly the way Joseph had prophesied. His only request when one servant is restored is that when you return to Pharaoh's house, let him know that I am here. And that I can help him. Well, years go by and Joseph still sits in prison. And one day the Pharaoh has a dream and none of his wise men, none of his diviners, none of his magicians can interpret the dream. And when that happens, the servant remembers Joseph and how he had interpreted the dream and he tells Pharaoh. Pharaoh sends for the prison. They have him brought before the king of the land. And God uses Joseph to interpret the dream. The king had had two dreams. It had a dream of the seven stalks of corn that grew up and were rich and bountiful. And then seven stalks that were scrawny and ugly that, that rose up and devoured the rich and bountiful ones. And then he had another dream of seven fat, beautiful heads of cattle and then seven scrawny, decimated cows that rose up and ate them. And God revealed to Joseph that they weren't actually two dreams, they were one. And that the meaning of the dream was that there would be seven years of great harvest and plentiful crops in the land, followed by seven years of famine like they had never seen before. And so Joseph tells the king, what you need to do is to appoint a man of wisdom and integrity to administer the crops during these seven years of harvest where, where the grain is plentiful. And have him save a portion each year so that when the seven years of famine come, we will be prepared. And, and Pharaoh, noting that, that Joseph has the hand of God upon him, places Joseph as ruler over that project. In fact, makes him vice-regent, second only to Pharaoh, running the nation. Now, years go by, and we enter into the season of famine, and Joseph's brothers and his family are starving outside of Egypt, and they come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Now, there's a long story that goes around this, but Joseph ends up forgiving his brothers, and his father Jacob and the entire household comes to Egypt where they're placed in safety and security to live and survive this famine. And it's really an amazing thing because not only is there forgiveness and restoration and the family reunited, the lineage of salvation was preserved. See, God had promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that a descendant would come who would bring salvation to the nations. Now, we've got the full picture. We know that it's Jesus. 
Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. Now that family line is in danger of dying out in starvation in the wilderness, but Joseph forgives and restores his brothers. And because of that, the hope for the nations is preserved. Joseph marries, he has sons, and he dies. So I want you to think about the life story of Joseph and these acts of faith that he took along the way. Because you have this amazing transformation from this kid who's probably an arrogant snot to to this man of tremendous faith and responsibility, this man of integrity. And so we could go through it and we could say, by faith, Joseph served and blessed the house of Potiphar. By faith, he denied Potiphar's wife offer of adultery. By faith, he interpreted dreams and spoke as a prophet for God. By faith, he stood before the king and honored the Lord. By faith, Joseph justly ruled over Egypt. By faith, he forgave his brothers who had offended him. By faith, Joseph restored the family. By faith, Joseph led to the preservation of the lineage that would bring salvation. Amazing acts of faith. I mean, just think of this one thing, the amount of faith that it would take to forgive your own brothers who had sold you into slavery. And so when I, when I look at the life of Joseph, there's no doubt that he's a man of faith. What I find intriguing and a bit of a mystery is what the Holy Spirit points out in Hebrews 11 as his most significant act of faith. So I want you to look at Hebrews 11, verse 22, when the Holy Spirit looks upon the life of Joseph and points out one thing that stands above everything else that he had done that demonstrated his faith in God. This is what the Holy Spirit says you need to know about Joseph in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What? Now, I want you to think about this. A couple questions pop up. One, what were the instructions that he gave? We're going to get there. But it's not abnormal for people when they're dying to kind of have some last demands. When we know that it's coming, we, we, we might have a sense of these are the music, that these are the hymns I want you to sing. These are the scriptures that are most important to me. I'd love you to read them. Maybe this is a pastor that I was close to, and I would love if he's available, if he could speak. And, and, and maybe even think about knowing kind of the spiritual condition of your family, what messages from the scriptures they might need to hear. So you, you, it's normal to plan like that. I want you to look at Genesis 50 on Joseph's deathbed. This is a whole other category. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is dying. And he gathers his sons and grandsons around. And I want you to hear his final words as he lays on his deathbed, beginning in verse 22. It says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So what it tells us, Joseph grew to see his great-grandchildren. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. These are Joseph's last words. This this is outside of the category of, of read Psalm 23 at my service. 
Here's what Joseph says. Um, I'm about to die, so here's what you do. You guys embalm me, and I want you to put me in storage. And one day, uh, God's going to take us from here to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want you to get a U-Haul. I want you to put me in it. I want you to take me with you. That's weird. Uh, For me, growing up watching Westerns with my dad, this makes me think of Lonesome Dove and and Gus making uh, Woodrow swear to take him, you know, back from like Wyoming to bury him outside of San Antonio. Just odd kind of demands. But I want you to think about something. This isn't a guy who's 110, who's maybe just got a little off and pushy as he's gotten towards the end. Joseph's mind is clear. The scriptures say this is an act of faith. And so what I want us to do is is follow the trail of Joseph's bones as this mystery unravels and begin thinking why this is so significant to the people of Israel. Because this isn't the last time that we hear about Joseph's bones. When the exodus is taking place, the bones of Joseph show up again in the story of the people of Israel. Now, when I see the exodus is taking place, what I mean is that God came in sending Joseph as a messenger, demanding that the Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Pharaoh said no, and so God brought a series of plagues and judgment upon the people of Egypt until Pharaoh finally said yes. And so now we've gotten to the point that Joseph, as a singular leader, is leading about two million people out of Egypt with all of their worldly possessions and into the wilderness to begin a journey for who knows how long to the promised land. And and Moses, realistically, has got a huge checklist because he's leading such a massive movement of people. So I want you to think, I've got five kids, a family of seven, takes us about an hour and a half to leave the house. Two million people. Moses has got a significant project management issue on his hands. His list is a scroll that goes a mile long. And in Exodus 13, in the midst of all of those moving pieces of getting two million people out of Egypt, I want you to see in verse 17 what happens. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So, so catch this. Moses is leading two million people in a mass exodus and personally takes time to go make sure that the bones of Joseph are with him. And then for over 40 years, right at 40 years in the wilderness, they're wandering around and they get a lot of stuff to carry. They've got sheep and goats. They've got this tabernacle, this massive tent that they set up everywhere they go. And there's a couple guys whose job is every time they set up and break camp to make sure Joseph's bones go with them for 40 years. The bones show up again in Joshua chapter 24 when we see the death of Joshua. Joshua had led them into the promised land. He had been used by God to conquer their enemies there. And after this season of conquest, we get the record of Joshua's death. Chapter 24, verse 29. 
After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Surah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known the work the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor and the father of Shechem for a hundred pieces of money. So, when you, all right, so Moses personally makes sure that they bring them with them. And then at the end of things, when they've conquered the land and moved in and have received the promise that God gave them, at the death of Joshua, their greatest military leader, they continue that moment and they go bury Joseph in the land that his grandfather bought. Think about this. Whatever this is, it means a lot to them. It's incredibly important. This is more than just some quirky thing that a man said on his deathbed. This is significant. It's significant, one, because the people of Israel took it so incredibly seriously. And two, that the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11 says this is the greatest act of faith that Joseph ever did. And so I want us to begin thinking about why that might be. And and I want you to think about the powerful promise that Joseph shares with his descendants. Because something happens between Joseph and Moses. 400 years of slavery, 400 years of hard labor, 400 years of oppression, 400 years of their sons being murdered because Pharaoh is afraid of them, 400 years of starvation, 400 years of being treated as second-class citizens, 400 years of being treated as less than human. And during that season of 400 years of slavery, every time a group of young boys would come of age, Their father would say, kids, gather around. I need you to listen to something. This is important. One day, God is going to rescue us. And he's going to deliver us from slavery here in Egypt. And he's going to take us to a good land that he promised your great, 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 great grandfather. And when he does, We're going to go get Joseph's bones and we're going to bury him in that land. 400 years. 400 years, fathers would tell their sons, son, I know that they beat us today, but one day they will not beat us. I know that that we don't even get to farm our own land, but one day God will give us our own property to farm. I know that this is a shack that we live in, but one day God will give us homes that are built that we'll just move into. I know that we live in fear. One day we'll live in security. I know that we live under oppression. One day we'll live in freedom. For 400 years, the promise of God was transmitted down family lines. For 400 years, they were reminded that they were about to die of starvation during the famine, and God used Joseph to rescue them, and that God had promised to rescue them again by delivering them from the hands of their Egyptian captors. For 400 years, the promise of God went forth. Joseph left a legacy of faith that reminded the people of Israel that no matter what they went through, During that season of slavery, God would come 
to their aid. So when Moses shows up and says, I am has sent me, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has heard your crying out, and he has seen your affliction, and he has come to rescue you, the people said, we know who that is. We've heard that promise. And Moses is used by God to set them free. And God uses Joseph to sustain the people during that season of hardship. Because he built a legacy of faith. Now Joseph made a decision, though. Joseph decided that he would leave a legacy of faith. One of the realities that faces us is that we don't get to decide not to leave a legacy. There's no neutral option where we don't leave anything behind, where, where our experiences with our children and the other children that are kind of in proximity, proximity to us because of their friendships, that, that we just walk away and there's nothing left. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, he tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He, he says this, you will be my witnesses. You're going to testify to something. He doesn't say, you'll be my witnesses, maybe if you'd like to. He, do, he doesn't say, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. He states a reality that your life will speak to something. The question is, what will it be? Joseph made a choice that his life would speak to the faithfulness of God in the past and the promise of God in the future and encourage his children his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren to do the same. Now, if you're sitting here today and you think that's the kind of legacy I'd like to leave, I would like for generations, not only in my family, but in those that are connected to my family, the kids that my kids play ball with, that they're on chess club with or debate team with, the kids that my kids are in band with, that they'll understand something about Jesus that will stick with them or the younger couples that you're around that you sit next to in church or that are in your small group, that your life will mean something and will stick with them in a way that draws them closer to God, that encourages their faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. If that's where you're at and you say, I want to do that, I want to just give you just a few practical thoughts. First, I would tell you, you, you must choose to act. You're not going to stumble backwards into leaving a legacy that points to Jesus. It's not going to just happen one day. It's going to take intentionality. You're going to have to make decisions to do this. You see that in Joseph's life. Joseph has thought about what he's doing. He's clear-headed when he does this. This is an act of faith. Joseph is willfully turning down a state burial in Egypt with all the grand statues and carvings that, that come along with that. All the wealth of Egypt, he's set that aside. He's made a decision to go against his culture, to embrace Christ, and to encourage his descendants to do the same. You're going to have to make a choice, and you're going to have to take action. This won't happen accidentally. Second thing I would tell you is invest in moments that build legacy. Make that a priority, not only in your words, but in your deeds, even in your finances. Our kids don't need more stuff. Invest in moments and experiences that leave memories that transform your children. 
The new Xbox doesn't do that. I'm not saying a new Xbox is bad. I'm saying a new Xbox, if that money was spent doing something else that left a lasting memory, and in that vehicle of that moment and experience, you could impress upon your children your love for them, your love for Jesus, and your desire for them to walk with them, that that is a, a better use of your resources. Invest in moments. We don't need more stuff. We need lasting memories and legacies that speak to who Jesus is and what our heart and desire is for our children. The third thing I would remind you is that you can't build a legacy from your deathbed. Joseph doesn't live a life that looks nothing like a follower of God and then on his deathbed say, kids, follow Jesus. doesn't carry weight if that's what happens. Joseph's life is completely consistent with the legacy that he desires to leave. So don't think that that you're going to wait and just kind of be ho-hum, lazy about this following Jesus thing, and then then when you're dying, you're going to get advance warning, and you're going to get the kids in front of you, and you're going to tell them, fall hard after Jesus. I know I didn't do it, but I think you should. And that's going to carry weight. It's not. Begin now. Begin now. This fourth point I would remind you with, it's not too late to start, though. It's not too late to start. The message of the gospel is that none of us is ever beyond redemption and transformation. Jesus has died for us. He's risen again. He sent his spirit to us. He does great and mighty things to those submitted to him. So you can begin now, even if you're up in years, even if you'd squandered time, you can begin now. Make the most of the time. Last practical tip I would tell you is that make sure that this legacy that you're leaving with your children and other couples around you and the, the children that are part of your kids' network with this next generation, make sure that it's, that it's bigger than some attributes about integrity and character. Those are good things. I want my sons and daughters to grow up to be men and women of integrity, men and women of honor. I want those things for them. But, but more than, than those single things, I want them to be men and women who search hard after Jesus. So, so make sure that, that it's not just saying, uh, son, we, we're, we're men and this is how men act and we're strong and we protect our families and we're tender and we care for them. We're going to go bigger than that and connect that to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them and dying for them to redeem them and what Jesus wants for them in calling them to be a part of making disciples to reach the nations. Because this mission is not only to the ends of the earth, but to a thousand generations if necessary. So we want to hand off not only attributes that we think are important, but beyond that, we want to dig into the gospel and make sure that that is the root of the legacy that we leave. When I think about legacy, there's a particular scripture that for me jumps out and has for years. In fact, Alicia got this text turned into a piece of art that's on the wall in our home as a reminder for us. And it's Psalm 78 Psalm 78, I find interesting, it's not a poem for the sake of being a poem. It's a commitment. It's a commitment that the people of God made to leave a legacy with their children. I want us to go through it today, but I want us to do something just a little different than how we might normally read the Scriptures. I want to ask you guys to stand, but stand on one condition. If you are here today and you are ready to make a solemn commitment before the Lord 
to live in such a way to leave a legacy that points to Jesus, I want you to do this with me. I want you to stand and I want you to read the commitment of Psalm 78 with me. Now, don't feel like you have to stand up. If you're not in, you're not, you know, that's okay. There's no pressure here. We're not going to not want to eat lunch with you afterwards. But this is a serious moment between you and the Lord. So if you were here today and you say, I want to commit with all the energy that the Lord gives me to leave a lasting legacy that for generations points to Jesus, would you stand and read Psalm 78 as a solemn commitment with me? We're going to begin with give ear because that's where the the psalm itself begins. And we're going to go through verse 8 together. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. I want you guys to remain standing with me, and I want you to think about the commitment that that psalm led us in. It's a recognition that we have failed in many ways but that we desire our children and our children's children and children yet to be born would rise up and teach their children the promise of God so that they would not forget, so that they would obey. That's the legacy Joseph left his family. And I pray that for each of us, it would be the legacy that we leave. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. That you have sent your son Jesus to die for us. That you raised him again in power and glory and that he'll return for us, Lord. And I pray that for every day until now and then that that promise would be at the forefront of our hearts and minds. That it would be the centerpiece of the legacy that we leave our children and and their friends and, and all of this next generation who we interact with. Father, I pray that in the midst of that, you would strengthen us. Lord, we know that this task is too great for us. And so we need your spirit to empower and strengthen us. But Father, I pray that you would lead us into increasing conviction that we need to leave something behind that matters. And that in that commitment, your spirit would come and strengthen us, that you would honor that desire in our hearts, knowing that it's from you. And Lord, I pray that in that today, that you have planted seeds that will have an impact for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.